Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Global Intelligence Update. And as always, we've got a, a special guest with us. This time, Byron will be joining us. And Byron, if you don't know who he is, let me do a, a quick introduction on, on Byron. Uh, Byron is a, a project manager and solutions architect who hit a fork in the road of life and chose to help others by sharing the knowledge to run a project successfully. From a young, Byron knew that he would be an educator one day. Instead of teaching children, he has been training adults in business management skills, peppered with life skills for over two decades now. It took a, a failed marriage, financial ruin, and an unlawful decision by a judge to push him into the series of soul awakening experiences and a deep exploration of consciousness to make him the, the loving and caring man he is today, committed to helping humanity step forward into his magnificence. So Byron, that introduction doesn't make justice, man. <laughs> Such oh, an amazing human being, and um, we're really excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And I do say that that was a very humbling uh, introduction, and I'm glad you think it was insufficient. <laughs> now, hopefully, I can step into those big shoes and walk forward. Yeah. The floor is all yours. All right. Thank you. So welcome everybody to another session of fun and of knowledge and of sharing. And I'm very happy to be here after having participated as US participants for, for many years. So let me uh, present to you with the slides that I have uh, created so that uh, we can also follow in a more structured way. Not that many slides, but enough to make sure that our conversation is channeled in the right direction. So I'm just gonna put you up here so I can see you also. And without further ado, let's begin. Uh, I wasn't at all surprised either that we weren't gonna have a huge turnout at the start of the session. Uh, I'm currently based in Malaysia with also residency in Singapore. So for me, it's just after three o'clock in the afternoon. And as you would imagine, that's the time of the day when we're usually busy, right? Meetings, trainings, or something related to the business. So the fact that I could carve out the time to do the presentation live today, I am very grateful. So I'll tell you why I picked this topic of using projects to drive change in your business, even though um, I do have other interests and other passions. It's because primarily I have been training project management for the last 10 years. And one of the things that I want to get people uh, to understand as part of those trainings is that there is such a discipline and profession as project management. And there are six well-known project constraints that if you are aware of them, will make a big difference between success and failure. And finally, that there are lots of methods and picking the correct one, or at least the combination of methods will also go a long way in helping you achieve a successful result. So in the small amount of time that I have today to share with you, I thought I would focus on these three main points. And uh, if everything goes well, I may be invited to speak again, where I can expand on this and go a little bit further, either in a specific method or approach, or uh, go into a different topic related to project management. So as Chris aptly pointed out, I have had a twisted life. And I have included this slide here so you can have more information about myself. 
in particular that I have been a trainer since 2011. I was a trainer in Canada also for the first 10 years of my career coming out of professional, uh, sorry, engineering school at École Polytechnique de Montréal. Yes, I did my studies all en français because I was born and raised in Montreal and that's where I studied. And I always knew that you know, training would still be a big part of my life, even after nine years of doing it and then jumping into a systems engineer, solution architect, project management career, which I enjoyed and did well for 12 years. But if anybody has done that kind of work, you'd understand that it can get quite challenging and tiring. And I was looking for more balance in my life. Coincidentally, that's also when I met Mike and Dave Rogers and then subsequently Landy Jack. So those people came into my life in 2011, which is uh, also the start of my membership in Circle of Excellence. So maybe some of you have been members longer, others less. So you get an idea of how long I've known our uh, coaches and mentors. So with that, I'd just like to say also that I am of Greek origin in case you were wondering about the surname. My parents both have origins in Crete and in Cyprus and in mainland Greece. And yes, I have lived an interesting life. I'm also been in Asia since 2001. So living in the West, living in the East, and very soon I'll be living in the center because it is my goal to go spend at least 10 to 20 years in Greece uh, sooner than later. In fact, this summer, I just came back from three weeks, uh, not two, three weeks, 16 days in July in Greece where I did the competent crew for sailing in Corfu, I know there's worse places to go and take a course. I realize that. And also followed by the Platinum Mastermind in Santorini with Mike and Landy. So doing those two courses, plus other trips that I've done in Greece, confirmed that, yes, this is a nice place to spend more time. Back to project management. Let's start with the basic concepts of project management. And I know you've taken time to be here in person. And for those of you that are going to be watching this in video or audio format, I will try to make this worth your while so that you watch the replay or listen to the replay. And I am mindful that some people are not going to be watching this. So if you see me talk more to be more descriptive, that's part of the intended outcome. So let me ask you, without even me saying anything else related to projects, why does a project succeed or fail? And to answer this question, feel free to type it up in the chat. I've got my chat window standing by to my right. Or to unmute yourself and say it. Because I find that when people think about it and start to talk about it, it makes things easier. Now, to help note down your answers, I will create a text box over here, which I will start to fill in as soon as somebody send something my way. So Philippe, merci. He's saying uh, risks. Yeah. So risks is all about uncertainty, correct? And also he's saying planning. Yeah. So planning at all levels. And you might probably extend that by saying poor planning, lack of planning. Or as saying issues in alignment, yes. So upper management, for example, may say one thing and then the rest of the team understands something else. 
or the team doesn't want to do what is being requested because they don't get it or they don't want it. Philippe also adds lack of focus. This one is probably more insidious than it appears. We're told to work on the project. We're going to concentrate and then other things come up which seem to be more important than the project we're working on. So how to balance the both, how to stay focused, how to stay with the project when you have competing demands. Ah, let's talk about skills. Yes, that's another good one. So Aura is adding, sorry, I think I skipped one. Uh, Panisi, sorry, I missed your comment. Consistency or failure to follow up, yes. So lack of consistency. Failure to follow up. Those can be seen as two different things, but for the sake of uh, writing them down, I'll put them together. So lack of follow-up is lack of consistency. In other words, you follow up today and then you follow up maybe in 10 days and then after that three days, or you don't do it at all. As we'll see uh, shortly, uh, planning a project is one thing. Going through the motions and executing it is another. Okay, now we talk about the employees. So thank you, Aura. Uh, employee misplacement of skills. In other words, you have skills, but not necessarily with the right people at the right time in the right place. Or maybe you don't have the skills that you need and you have to go and get them from elsewhere. So that could be an extension of that point. The wrong team, that's a good extension of this uh, skills issue. You have the wrong team for the wrong project. And that could be attitude, it could be aptitude, it could be anything related to teamwork. So as you can see, already I didn't I didn't say anything, right? This is like the first the first slide of the deck, the first question I ask, and already you have a whole list of things. And due to time, I'm gonna stop it there. I, I'm sure if I kept brainstorming in the proper way, we probably come up with another two or three slides worth of things that help your project succeed. Or on the flip side, if you don't do it, make it fail. So we know success and failure, it's like the two sides of the same coin. If you do something well, then you avoid the failure. If you don't do something well, well, you've learned something that you can use to succeed. So now I've got you thinking about what makes a project succeed or fail? So you would be then naturally inclined to ask, well, what is a project and what do we mean by success and failure? And um, what can we do about it? That's what's coming up next. Let's first of all, define a project. And some of this information might sound a little bit cryptic. It might be also um, a bit technical. But I also wanted to emphasize the fact that project management is indeed a profession and there are standards that need to be followed if you're gonna do it properly. So if you wanna go buy the book, the book says a project is a temporary endeavor undertaken to create a unique product service or result. The idea of endeavor, I think is quite general and describes something that you want to do something that you want to accomplish, whether it's to create, as they say, a product or a service or something else. And the fact that it's temporary also adds an extra element 
of pressure, of stress. If I give you enough time, you can probably get anything done. But when you don't have enough time, that's when you have to start making decisions as to what am I going to do first? What am I going to prioritize? So in the context of projects, we need to be clear on what deliverables we want to produce and what objectives we're trying to fulfill with those deliverables, because we only have so much time. Now, a little side note so that you don't get lost also in this uh, cryptic jargon. The PM Bog Guide is a short name for the Guide to the Project Management Body of Knowledge. Yes, there is such a book. In fact, there are several of these different books. And this is the book that was written by the Project Management Institute in the US. And it establishes the standard for project management for the United States, as well as giving us guidance on how to deliver a project. Now, I refer to it because as a good reference guide, it has a lot of definitions. So hence the definition of a project taken from that book. Now, coming back to um, the characteristics of the project, because you have a definitive beginning and a definitive end, then that pressure is going to make you decide to do certain things and possibly drop others. Which brings us to the next point. Why do it in the first place? Why even run a project if it's going to be so stressful? Well, because projects drive change. That's the main reason we do projects. Let me explain with the next point, which has to do with business value creation. All of us are in business to produce value for our customers. And I know some people will be even more specific. Oh, no, it's to produce value for our shareholders. That's one of the classic definitions for business value. But put that aside. At the end of the day, something good has to come out of our business. And at any point in time, if you look at this diagram, our current state in terms of the business value that we create is at a certain point. And we realize that if we want to increase that value that we're able to produce, we're going to have to make a change because in our current state, this is all the value we're creating. The future state, after doing some transition, some transformation, our business value will be higher. So the question is, well, how do we go from the current state to the future state? And very often, people choose the vehicle of the project to create that. Simple example. Let's say you have a business and you have two products. And you feel like you've hit the ceiling. And now you want to have a third product to get higher in terms of the business value that you create. Well, you're going to have to create that third product. And that creation process will happen in the context of a project. In other words, your business is still going to keep going. And then on another track over here to the side, you're going to be creating this new product with a certain structure. And when it's ready, it's going to integrate back into your existing business. So that's what I mean by the projects drive change. They are designed to create something unique. And therefore, ultimately, if it's the right thing that you needed to create, you will have business value. Now, you brought up some excellent points in terms of why projects don't succeed. 
And for example, with the employee or the skill set point, you realize that during the course of your project, let's say you're creating this third product and it's going to take you a year to develop it. During that year, you're going to have all kinds of business-related skills and concepts that you're going to need to manage in order to arrive at the result. So if you look at it from a skill set perspective, running a project is like running a business, except for a specific period of time. And that, again, adds to the pressure, as I pointed out earlier. Another challenge that we face in projects is who's involved? Who are the stakeholders, not the shareholders, the stakeholders? Who has something that they are contributing to the project or who has something that will affect them, that the project will affect them? And in order to simplify things, I've lumped these three roles into broad categories that you can all use. Every project has a sponsor. Somebody says, I want to do this. I'm giving permission for money to be spent. Go. There's usually a customer at the end that will receive what you've created. And that customer often will pay for the product or pro the, the outcomes of the project that you have created. So for example, if you're creating that third product, there's a customer that eventually will buy it. So you need to put yourself in the shoes of that customer and figure out what do they want? What do they need? so that your sponsorship of the project is worthwhile. And finally, there's a delivery team. And I use this term very wisely. The delivery team is anybody that actually delivers the project. And for the women and mothers in the room, yes, there's a very direct link to maternity and to the delivery of a baby. In fact, for a lot of people, delivering a project is like giving birth. Yes, it can be as painful as that process. So a lot of metaphors used in project management, and I think this is one of the classic ones, is that we are delivering something. Okay, so with that, you have the basics of what a project is. Now, for the sake of flow, I'm just going to continue going. And I'm going to also stop at places where I need your participation. However, if you have any questions along the way or any comments that you want to make, uh, I'm happy to entertain them. And I'll just make sure that it doesn't um, run on for too long so that I can cover everything that I want to present today. There's another thing that I wanted to bring up because some people hear program and they wonder, is that like a project? Or is it different? So I just wanted to clarify that in case you hear terms like, you know, the program manager or the program director, what's the difference? Well, strictly speaking, a program is different than a project because what we do is we take related projects, things that we want to do together, and we park them under an umbrella called a program. So what that helps us to do is to manage in a coordinated manner these different individual projects that are actually tied together so that I can have oversight on everything and I can manage the before and the after of the projects also. So there has to be some benefit to manage these projects as a program because you're adding extra overhead. In the introduction, I heard you all talking about the World Cup. 
a big sporting event like a World Cup is a program. In fact, it could be even one level higher, but let's just call it a program. So you have all these little projects that make the program a success by itself. You cannot run one project to make all of that happen. So, for example, in a World Cup, you would have you know the aspect of the stadiums. Where are we going to play? And is there any renovations that are needed or any new stadiums? You would have uh, the movement of people. Where are they going to stay? Where how are they going to move around from one stadium to another? Then you have the whole aspect of security. How are we going to make sure everybody gets along and doesn't run into violent conflict? So these different projects will be coordinated together as a program. And I've given you also a uh, visual example of that in the slides so that you can refer back to it. So I don't want to dwell more time on the concept of the program. However, if you have any questions on this after we're done, I'm happy to come back and discuss. So then let's come back to projects. So project management is like any other business management skill. It's knowledge, it's skills, it's tools, and it's techniques that we apply to the activities of a project to meet the requirements. So we want to create a product. Well, let's do the work and create that product. Now, I mentioned earlier that project management itself is a profession. So why is it important that you as small and medium enterprise owners and participants, why, why is this important? Why should we even be talking about project management? Well, unlike larger organizations who have a lot more resources, you face obstacles that need to be addressed. For example, one of the obstacles you face is you need to complete a project on time and on a tight budget. Those are very difficult things to balance. Also, even if you're well organized and you have clearly defined project objectives, your project can grow to be too complex and then you feel overwhelmed and you can't deliver it as expected. And on the concept of expectations, the project expectations and requirements can be fluid and change. This is a classic problem. You think you've established all the requirements at the beginning of the project, and then as the project progresses in time, things change. People want more or less or different. And then you have to do all your planning again. And again, another thing that you're facing is that you're often required to improve performance with fewer resources. In other words, be more productive and efficient and also under pressure to innovate so you can stay relevant in your market. So as you can see, there is a need to have this conversation and share with you some of the things you can do to have more effective project management in your business as a whole. For the sake of completion, I've also included the definition of program management on the slide, and I will leave it there and continue. So now let's move on to the six constraints so that you can actually see the difficulties you're up against, but also what areas you have to govern. When I asked you earlier, what were the reasons for success and failure in a project? It's because I wanted you to point out these things. So behold the project constraints. There are six of them, but the ones in red are the classic constraints. I did it in the form of a triangle because there's a symbology here that I want you to appreciate. Every project starts with scope. Here's what I want to do. 
here's what I want to achieve. For example, I want to create a product or I want to organize an event or I want to design and develop a service. Whatever it is you want to do, it starts with scope. What am I going to do? The second constraint often is time. When do we need to do this by? What is the schedule? So we use the word time, but since we can't really manage time, we can, however, manage schedules. The word schedule is there to exemplify that. And the third classic constraint is the cost. Because if I know what I need to do, and I know when I need to do it, the schedule, then I need to know how much is it going to cost. Now, let me talk about these three first, and then I'll talk about the other three. It's important to have balance in these three. If you don't, you're going to run into issues. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're supposed to do something. You're, you're, you're creating something. And the base scope is the bottom of this pyramid. But as you're working on it, your stakeholders get all excited and they say, hey, this is really good. Could we do this and this and this also? And they effectively are telling you, we want more. We want you to not only do this, but to actually do almost twice as much, okay? So you say, I'm going to do all this, and then they tell you, no, no, can you do more also? Can you do all of this? So what they're doing is they're extending the base of your triangle. Now, in basic geometry, if I extend the triangle base and I want the triangle to stay in balance, I also have to extend the other two sides, correct? So I would have to create, extend, sorry, this one over here. In other words, if you want me to do more, then you should give me more time, right? If I have 10 things to do, but now you want me to do 20, I need more time. I don't know if I need twice as much more time, but I need more time. That's why I made the time longer. And if it's going to take more time, you have a burn rate. You have a run rate to run your business and to run your projects. So clearly it's going to take more money. Correct. So in a similar way, I will have to increase the cost in proportion. So again, I know this is not geometrically exact, but the intention is there. If you increase the scope of your project, you should review the schedule and the cost allocation. Otherwise, you may cut yourself short. And you probably have come across situations like this, which happened to me. The customer says, would you like, could you do more for us? So increasing my scope. So when I went up, up to him and I asked him, I said, okay, well, I need more time. He says, cannot. Why? Well, we already have a promised time to market. So no, you're not getting more time. Forget that. Uh, okay, well, then can I have more money? Because if you increase my budget, then I'll be able to hire more people and somehow scramble and get more done. He says, cannot. You'll still get the same amount of money. So can you see that my triangle is starting to look ridiculous? It's like, how can I do this project with the same amount of time 
and the same amount of money. You see, it's like it's not making any sense geometrically. So I want you to watch out for that when you are scoping something and scheduling it and costing it. There will be at some point a balance where people feel, yes, we can achieve this. Any changes will have to be managed carefully. Otherwise, you're going to end up with this mess. Okay, so I don't need my props anymore. Let me remove them. These three constraints were historically called the triple constraint of a project because they are exactly that, the three core constraints. And then thought leaders and people running projects said, you know what, we should also add the other constraints in explicitly. That way there's no ambiguity. For example, people need to work on the project. Those are your resources. And they also are finite and they also have a certain skill set. So therefore, your resources are part of the challenge. When I say resources, I mean people. I mean, you know, men and women. But I also mean materials, facilities, transportation, whatever else you need to run the project is a resource will be constrained. An extension of scope is quality. You can make a product, but is it going to be the right level of quality? Is it going to be good enough for your stakeholders' demands? So the quality is also a constraint. Everybody wants good and cheap, but those two are very difficult to balance. You can have good, but it will be expensive. You can have cheap, but it won't be so good. Yeah. So having good and cheap is not that easy. So quality also is a constraint. And as I said, it's usually an extension of the scope. People decide what they want, and then they say, is this going to be good enough? Just to clarify this point uh, with an example that just happened on the weekend for me, we don't have an espresso machine in the house. And we've been looking at getting a proper, a proper coffee grinder and a nice espresso machine. But when you start looking at quality machines from Italy, for example, you're looking at at least 1,500 euros yeah, to have the grinder and the espresso machine. So my wife and I were in the shopping mall here in um, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and we see a shop that has all these appliances. And it's a local brand, local Malaysian brand. They have this little cute espresso machine. 75 euros, I think, maybe even a bit less if I do the conversion. We said, look, we don't have much experience with this thing. Why don't we buy this first to play around with it? And once we figure out that, yeah, this is not good enough, the quality of the coffee is not good enough, we need a better machine, then we can invest in the better machine with knowing that, yes, we actually need it. So look, I have no expectations of this machine. It's got a two-year warranty. If it makes it to two years, thank you, Lord. If it doesn't make it to two years, I don't care. <laughs> because I know that I've paid for something really low end. I have no expectations. Yeah. So this is important for people to understand what they ask for and the quality. Because that sets the expectations and is often the difference between something being a success and not. Okay, finally, this last point on risk is super important. 
as you mentioned earlier, when you said uh, right at the beginning, Philippe, um, risk levels, how much uncertainty are you willing to tolerate? So managing the uncertainty is one of the key reasons we run projects the way we do. Very often project managers will tell you, I'm not a project manager, I'm a risk manager. My job is to look at anything that can go right or wrong and make sure that the wrong stuff doesn't affect us and that the right stuff helps us. Those are the key mindset attributes of a good project manager, watching out for the unexpected. Now you'll be thinking, yeah, Byron, well, you know, as a business manager, I do the same thing. Not to the same level of intensity as a project manager. Why? Time. You have that schedule constraint that is always there. And therefore, you cannot afford to make too many mistakes. So risk management is a key attribute of project management. So with that, I give you the six project constraints that you should watch out for and plan into your execution of the project. Also, when it comes to planning, and I'm not going to talk about the planning process in detail today, lack of time, you should look at these six things. In other words, when you're setting up your planning documentation, you say, okay, what am I doing? Scope. When am I doing it? Create a schedule with the different milestones. How much is this going to cost me? Now, cost, as you have understood, is a derivation. It's a result of knowing what you need to do, when you need to do it, and also who's going to do the work. Some resources are cheaper than others. Some are more experienced and expensive than others. So resources is going to affect your cost. And what level of quality? You know, the machines from Italy that cost 2,000 euros, there's a reason why they cost 2,000 euros. And it's not just the name, right? It's all the parts that they use and the manufacturing and the precision. So also determine how good you want your product to be. And when you have these five things established, have a look. What don't I know? What will throw me off? What assumptions do I have that I need to validate? All of these things then will make up a very good first pass at your project plan. Any questions? Okay, I'm glad you were able to digest that in one sitting. The good news about the podcast is if some of it went over your head, you can watch it again. <laughs> So the third thing I want to talk about in this very fast-moving podcast that we're experiencing today is, okay, well, how do I run a project? What are the methods and approaches that I can use? So there's a lot of information in the next uh, few minutes. So I will ad add some additional links to the material so you can go and explore. And also you can always contact me after the session if you want to know more about these things. Here is two things that we need to talk about as a foundational point. The project life cycle and what are your two major choices? In other words, over time, how can you achieve a proper running of a project that is still going to achieve the results that you're looking for? The classic way of doing things, which is very much related to doing things that you need to build, construction type things, 
is what is known as the predictive approach and also known affectionately as the waterfall model because everything is in a linear way and it's also cascading. So you initiate, you plan, you do the work by executing, and then you close off. All the while you stay alert and you monitor and you control what's happening. So as you can see over here on the right, I have this Gantt chart. And this Gantt chart is showing a list of activities. And to uh, the right of it, you see bars that are showing the progress of these activities over time. And because these bars are cascading, it looks like a waterfall, right? You can imagine dropping some water here and it would flow all the way down. The other part of the waterfall analogy, which is relevant, is that once you start going down, it's difficult to go back up. In other words, once you start executing the project, if you have changes to make, it's usually difficult to go back to planning and make those changes. So these waterfall or predictive flows are excellent when A, you know what you're doing, or B, you know where you're going because you've done it before. Okay, so either you know or you know. Those are the two main reasons why you would choose this approach. If you don't know, it becomes very hazardous to do it this way. You can actually get yourself into trouble and it can also lead to failure. So organizations that try to do certain types of projects in the predictive way failed and gave up trying. And they said, we have to find a different way of doing it. And that's when the adaptive way of doing projects came out, which is also known as an iterative and incremental approach. So the main difference between the predictive and the adaptive is that instead of planning and executing once, we plan and execute repeatedly. So the initiation is the same, but it could be even shorter. And then instead of planning, 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 and then doing, 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 we plan and we do. We plan and we do. We plan and we do. It's akin to running 10 kilometers on a straight open path versus running 10 kilometers around a 400 meter track. Now, I know you're going to tell me, Byron, running 10 kilometers on a 400 meter track, that must be so boring. True, but it's very predictable. You can very well calibrate your pace. Whereas, you know, when you're running on the open road, unless you have devices like GPS and heart rate monitors and like, you can't really tell if you're going faster or slower. But around a 400 meter track, you can very well predict your running performance. So similarly in a project, you can predict if you're going to be on track because you can deliver in small pieces continuously. So these adaptive methods came out in the mid 90s to early 2000s. And this particular diagram, which shows the agile project management generic process, was written up in 2004 by Jim Highsmith. And he shows that after envisioning your idea and creating a product vision, then you speculate on what you need to do and you plan one piece of work and you just do it. And when it's finished, you go back and you plan another piece of work and do it. And what's important is the adaptations because every time you go around the track, you can ask yourself, should I be going faster, slower, should I be doing something different? It's an opportunity to get feedback right away and make a change.
So organizations have been using this now for the last 25 years quite successfully. But again, it's useful for when you don't know what you're doing. When you don't know what you're doing, this is best. If you do know what you're doing, then this might be a bit cumbersome and you may need to go back to the predictive model because it's just more easy and more direct. So let me give you some refinement on the adaptive one because you're probably, probably wondering, well, um, what does that look like really? I mean, that's a very simple uh, explanation. I think the predictive life cycle, I think that's pretty clear. Everybody intuitively understands that, okay, I need to think about what I want to do. I want to plan all the steps. Once all the planning is done, then I just go ahead and work the plan until I'm finished. But what about in the adaptive side? Well, first of all, let me just contrast the two, predictive and adaptive. So let's pick a very famous painting such as La Gioconda by Leonardo da Vinci. And let's say you know you want to paint La Gioconda, right? also known as Mona Lisa. So in your mind, you already have Mona Lisa there. So you're just going to basically paint her one piece after another. You know already what the final result is going to be. That's the predictive approach. The adaptive approach would say, well, I'm not sure what I want as a result, but something like a woman in a pastoral setting. So maybe you start by sketching with a pencil to get an idea. And then after that, you start filling in some color. And that color, well, it's not the, the final colors, but it's the first draft. Then you fill in again, but this time with deeper colors and you make some adjustments to the sketching. And eventually you get to La Mona Lisa. That's the adaptive approach. So for those of you that will watch this, uh, you'll see this on the slide. And for those of you that uh, are listening to it, you, I invite you to see the slide so you understand the difference between this, these two analogies, the predictive and the adaptive. So the question that I think many, some of you may have is, well, what actually caused this iterative incremental way to come into being? Like, what were the stumbling blocks that people were facing with things that they didn't know how to do that forced a different method? So to make a long story short, it goes something like this. You make assumptions when you do a project in a traditional way. You make assumptions about the planning and the execution. And if you have a project that is complex and innovative, you've never done it before, then the following assumptions are going to be challenged. Number one, people can know what they want before they see it. That's not so true. For example, go to a Greek restaurant, pick up a menu, and just read the items, you probably won't know what you're going to be eating until you see it. For example, the other day when I had beef uvetsi, even I had forgotten what the uvetsi was, but it's basically this small pasta that is uh, in a stew and it makes the beef very, very tender and the whole thing is just delicious. Then the people that are doing the work know how to do the work. Well, just because you know how to build something with one technique doesn't mean you know how to build it with another technique. So for example, a mason might be very good with brick, but he may have a very poor time with wood, with carpentry. Nothing will change along the way. We talked about this earlier. People are always changing their minds because as they start to see the result, the transformation in their minds is like, oh, that's not exactly what I was expecting. And the final thing is, 
we think that we can develop a product or do a project using a predictable and repeatable process. But in reality, you can do the same project time and time again. It will always be a little bit different. Or even another way of saying it, I have several people doing exactly the same project. They will do it differently because they have different experience. They have different knowledge. They have different skills. Finally, another reason why agility came into the picture is because finally somebody published results showing that projects are failing, especially when they're innovative or complex. And a lot of those projects are in the information technology space. So my colleague, Joanne Flynn, who's also a fellow Circle of Excellence member, published this book in 2010, The Success Health Check for IT Projects. And she demonstrated using numbers from the Standish Group that Yes, projects are failing. Now, these are the 2015 numbers, so they're more optimistic than the 20, um, 2008 numbers that Joanne used. But still, we see that a lot of projects are still failing, 29% on the waterfall side versus 9% on the agile side. Only 11% of projects succeed in waterfall, whereas 39 succeed in agile. So clearly, the agile methods have done something good to make projects more successful when they're complex and innovative and if they have some level of information technology attached to them. So as I wind down, I want to give you a few more examples and then I will stop for questions. First of all, how is working in an agile way different? Well, one thing that we do away with is having a linear process and sticking by it. Instead of following the process blindly and using tools blindly, we favor individuals and interactions. Also, a lot of times we get caught up in the documentation that we have to produce and we lose track that at the end of the day, people want something to work. They want software or they want a product that is functional. Another issue is contracts. We can be friends or we can fight over the contract. <laughs> Why don't we collaborate instead? And lastly, following your plan blindly without responding to change is often a recipe for failure. So this manifesto of agile software development was written in 2001 and to this day is the foundation for working in an agile way. It's a value-based, it's a principle-based methodology. We value the items on the left more because they give us more value. Another thing is you may have heard of a method called Scrum. And Scrum is a rugby posture. Yes, South Africans and everybody else on this call that likes rugby. Yes, Scrum is a rugby posture. And it inspired two software people in the 1990s to call their method by the name Scrum because 10 years earlier, two Japanese researchers had written an article where they said, if you do product development more like a rugby squad going down a field, you'll be much more successful because everybody is in motion and we can pass the ball to each other laterally. So the rugby analogy for product development gave birth to a framework called Scrum 10 years later. And just so you know, this is probably the most used agile method on the planet today. And I've given you an overview of it, which is very similar to the generic life cycle that I showed you earlier. You have your list of requirements in the product backlog, and then you start planning 
two weeks or four weeks at a time, no more. And you just go around and around and around the track until your backlog is empty enough. Finally, we cannot talk about these methods without bringing another Japanese tool into the picture, Kanban. So Kanban came out of the Toyota production system and is a tool to visualize work. In fact, the words Kanban are two Chinese characters that are used in Japanese. Kan is literally to see, and ban is the board. So literally, this means see the board. And when you see the board, you see who's doing what. I have a friend who is in human resources, and this one tool helped her reorganize her department to a level of performance that she never had anticipated. Because what she did is she put her to-dos in one column and then had the different people in her office pull the work from left to right. And everybody knew who was working on what. And they, they knew also how long somebody was working on it because until they went to the done column, it was still being done. And this gave a lot of people clarity in the office to the point where she said, I'm so grateful I learned this from you in the project management training. This has really, really helped. So Kanban is a method in itself. It comes from manufacturing, but can be used in our type of work very easily. And if some of you are using it already, great. If not, I have given you a link on the slides where you can go and learn from Marcus Hammerberg, a Swedish software developer who has three or four very lovely presentations on SlideShare to help you quickly get up to speed using Kanban. So with that, I have one last thing to say, and then I will let you ask questions. People ask me often, why does Agile work? And I tell them, it's very simple. In the traditional approach, you need to know what you're doing. So you need to have all the features that you're going to create and to some extent, the quality that you need. And then it's a guessing game if you're going to finish on time and you're going to finish within budget. The approach that agile practitioners take is, well, we lock the time because we know that's our time to market and we lock the cost because we have a budget. And better yet, we lock the quality because we cannot skimp on quality. So then given these three constraints, I will give you enough of a product that meets these constraints. And if we have more time and money, we'll make more. But if we don't, that's the minimum you're gonna get. It's known as the minimum viable product. So you end up having success, even though you don't have the entire solution. And you build on that success and you create more and more success. I've given also in the content, the combination of the predictive and the agile methods in case some of you are thinking, well, can I combine them? And the answer is yes. So I've given four different scenarios where you can combine them and please refer to them. And if you have any questions, again, feel free to reach out to me. Finally, I finish with this one page project manager. A lot of times people will look at me and say, okay, great, Byron, that was fantastic. I'm convinced I need to do more project management in a structured way. Where do I begin? Well, there's a lot of tools out there. There's a lot of templates. There's a lot of software. There's a lot of manual methods. Over the years, I've come to appreciate the one-page project manager by the Campbell brothers. 
and they have two or three different templates for the, depending on the type of projects that you're doing. This one, for example, is a construction type, manufacturing type project. And they have this one page where they put everything on it, the tasks, the timeline, the risks, the costs, the resources, everything is there. Your six constraints are on this slide. So it's a great tool to get started with. And they show you very quickly how to build it and how to track your project, how to use it to follow and make sure that you're monitoring and controlling your project correctly. So that's all the time I have. I hope that uh, this last um, hour has been beneficial to you and that I've managed to trigger some thinking and give you some solutions to the problem of running a project to drive change. Are there any questions in the five minutes that we have remaining? Steve, it was my pleasure. And thank you for your comment from earlier. I'm just reading it now. Yes, everything is changing faster and faster. So we have to be nimble. Agreed. Any other questions? It seems like you've explained it very well, Byron. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I am a product of my uh, of my product as a trainer. <laughs> yeah, it is, uh, I, and it's always my intention to be as clear as possible. So, Chris, yeah. I know you sent no, my no. contact details in the chat. I also have them here on this slide if anybody uh, didn't manage to take them. So you'll awesome. be able to follow up as necessary. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, really, thank you, Byron. That was quite a lot of informative information. And I think we would really love to have you back on the show again so we can delve even deeper into this and um, you know, set up 2024 um, for a successful year. Yes. Yeah, I look forward to yeah. it also. I'll finish off with uh, one project that I'm um, incubating right now, and it happened as a outcome of the Platinum Mastermind that I did with Mike and Landy in July. I've always wanted to merge sailing with some kind of revenue-generating activity. And then I thought, well, I could give these online courses on the boat, right? I mean, I do a lot of online training, so why not broadcast from the boat? But then I had an even bigger idea why not do the course entirely on the boat? It's like, for example, meet me in Corfu. The training starts on Monday morning and it finishes on Friday. And for five days, we're going to learn project management on the water. So wow. this is coming up. This is the next big thing for my business is to actually teach this on the sailboat. And I'm you're the first ones to hear about this. The only other person to know about is my wife and Mike and Landy, who I shared this with during the Platinum Mastermind. So the idea is incubating slowly and aiming to make it come alive sooner than later. Chris, oh, no, that sounds, sounds very exciting, man. Yeah. But uh, thank you very much. That's our time for the day. And uh, thank you to everyone joining us live. And thank you to all of those that are going to listen offline on the podcast. We hope you guys have a great week ahead. And um, Byron, just thanks again. You are you're awesome, man. Have a great week ahead, everyone. Cheers, cheers. Thanks,